0: I'm at DLD 2023 in Munich, technology conference. One person I didn't expect to bump into is Wojciech Sosvenica. He is the CEO of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation. He's based in Warsaw. He's here in Munich with me. Um, And he is talking uh, at DLD on technology in the service of humanity. Wojciech, technology hasn't got a very good press over the last few years and most people think of technology as doing a disservice to humanity. How does this all connect to you running the Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation?
1: Thank you. So the the foundation was established around uh, 12 years ago with one purpose, to safeguard all the authentic remains at Auschwitz-Birkenau. That is the whole infrastructure of the post camp, and all personal items of prisoners, survivors and and victims alike. And when COVID hit, we came to the conclusion that something needs to be done because all of a sudden the memorial, like so many other cultural institutions and museums and memorials around the world, had to go under lockdown. For Auschwitz-Birkenau, this meant that the voice of Auschwitz, the warning voice, um, which is warning the population worldwide. And in 2019, the last pre-COVID year, we had 2.3 million visitors with an increase over the past decade of five to 7%. So when, when COVID hit, uh, all of a sudden the memorial had to be shut down. And we realized that we have to do something extraordinary because people reached out and they told us, we need access. Auschwitz is unlike any other museum. And there is people who have family stories. There is families of survivors. There is school classes who expect access and you have to do something. And we said, well, we would like to do something, but it's extremely difficult to do something. Um, having our background in preservation, in fundraising for preservation. So we got together with two wonderful companies from Israel. One is Apps Flyer, the other is Diskin. And for the past two years we've been building a uh, platform, remote platform for remote guided visits, which very soon in a couple in the next two to three months will be launched. And it will allow um, for people from all over the world to visit Auschwitz birkenau remotely from any place basically through a living guide at the other end. So if you will be interested in visiting, you will uh, book a tour, you will connect on a date a specific hour with a uh, living human being at the other end, and they will uh, guide you for one hour and 45 minutes uh, on on site. It's an interesting
0: idea. I don't know whether I use that word interesting. I can't think of a better word, but uh, it's, it must be controversial as well, Wodzicka. I've been to Auschwitz, and the, the physical experiences as, as jarring personally as I've experienced in my life, perhaps comparable to, to visiting Hiroshima. How can this be done virtually without reducing it to just another online experience?
1: Yeah. So I was I was surprised myself very much because um, in in 2020 when um, COVID was coming, I was planning a trip to to Chicago to meet with various Jewish organizations to speak about the foundation, the preservation program, and to look for partners. And when it turned out that international travel is not possible, I reached out to them and I said, we have to postpone most likely. And they told me, no, we're not going to postpone, we're going to do it over Zoom, online. And I was very skeptical in the beginning because, like you, I I had no experience and uh, at Auschwitz, we uh, do everything to... um, To make this personal this experience as personal as possible because nothing can replace a visit on site so i was skeptical but uh, then we organized a tour over zoom over the platform for auschwitz one main camp and uh, we had over 100 uh, participants and three weeks later we did a tour for over Birkenau, auschwitz to Birkenau, and uh, that gathered over 240 participants and i was sitting in my office in warsaw We had a wonderful guide who was live at Auschwitz, who was guiding on site, and uh, the the result was extremely impressive, very moving uh, for all participants, and it told me that this is perhaps a solution we should pursue and look at at a systemic uh, solution. So we started immediately working on on, uh, something for the memorial, for the Auschwitz Memorial, and uh, the technology is very well advanced. We're right now testing with guides on site. The Auschwitz Memorial has 350 guides for working daily in uh, 21 languages. So not only can we make sure that uh, the memorial will be able to operate should an international crisis happen again, a a pandemic, for example, or international traffic should be uh, should be stalled, or a financial crisis would uh, cause people um, would um, make people unable to travel to Auschwitz-Birkenau. But we right now understand that with this technology we can reach audiences worldwide who would never have the chance to uh, to arrive in person because they live very far away in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. And uh, for them to make the effort uh, is, is, is beyond uh, uh, any possibilities because of financial reasons, of organizational reasons. So right now we understand that uh, this tool might be uh, wonderful in bringing the story of survivors and of victims uh, to any classroom, actually, or to any living room. If families are interested, we can, we can bring this experience over any screen um, um, to, to private homes, to uh, university campuses, and to school classes.
0: Wojciech, you live in Warsaw, you don't need me telling you that the Holocaust isn't dead in Poland, An enormously controversial political issue. How has your initiative of, of, of taking Auschwitz-Birkenau Birkenau virtual? How has it been um, treated in Poland itself? Is there any controversy over what you're doing?
1: There is there is no controversy. Um, we are uh, since uh, over the past two years, since we started working on this platform, there were many voices raised. Um, most of them about um, not having. Uh, a life experience on site because most people who made the experience came of course in person so um, The the biggest discussions we had were around ethical decisions. Is it okay to try to Share this experience over screen over large distances, but there is no political um, um, Discussion whatsoever and I I, neither in Poland nor in any other country. uh, I haven't come across it so I think that uh, this will be regarded as, as a huge opportunity for many countries. Um, those 2.3 million visitors who arrived in uh, 2019, out of them 400,000 were Polish visitors. It's, it's the largest, single largest national group because auschwitz now, like so many other memorials telling the story of the Holocaust and the crimes of the Shoah, is in the curricula of uh, Polish schools. The second largest group was from the UK, um, Great Britain has a wonderful uh, Holocaust educational program and they bring young people, many young people to, to Auschwitz-Birkenau. I am right now speaking to some governments in Europe, also local governments, uh, for example, the mayor of Leeds from the UK visited recently and he said he would love to um, open this opportunity for um, students from his city who will not be able to come in person, uh, but they should have the chance to uh, to visit Auschwitz-Birkenau to meet a living guide, to learn about um, um, individual stories of victims from first-hand um, guides and educators' experience. Uh, so I don't anticipate any criticism from any governments, um, democratically elected governments, who respect human rights and who understand the dangers of polarisation, racism, anti-Semitism, and so on.
0: Which, what's your background as a Pole? Uh, how did you get into this?
1: So, uh, 13 years ago, when the foundation was established, I had the honor to work with uh, Władysław Bartoszewski, who was an Auschwitz survivor himself. He was a a Polish um, fighter for independence. He was born in Warsaw um, in the 20s, of the 19th century, and um, he was caught in a roundup in uh, Nazi-occupied Warsaw and brought to Auschwitz-Birkenau, where he had spent uh, four months of his life and experienced uh, terrible, circumstances, and once being freed, because he was lucky enough to being freed from the camp, uh, he uh, understood that it's his lifetime mission to tell the story of, uh, of, uh, of the victims and survivors of Auschwitz-Birkenau, and he devoted his life, he was very successful, he was Poland's foreign minister twice in free, independent Poland. And uh, when I was working for him, he was advising uh, Prime Minister Tusk as Secretary of State and he was in charge of uh, Polish-German relations and Polish-Israeli relations. And at that time he made the decision, and some people from from my uh, generation made the decision to establish this foundation because we understand that it is our generation's responsibility to take care of all the authentic remains which are evidence of the crimes and which need need to be saved because um, very often these um, material witnesses, as we call them, a pair of um, eyeglasses, a pair of shoes, we have 100,000 shoes at, uh, at the memorial. They are very often the only um, material witnesses, which which are witnesses of the crimes. Very often, we don't know the personal stories of victims. So we have to make sure that every single item is solved, is uh, saved, uh, because otherwise, if we don't, do, if we neglect this task, uh, we would make ourselves um, co-responsible in some extent for the for the mad plan of Adolf Hitler to extinguish all traces of Jewish life. Um, in Europe, so we have to save every single item and and this is um, this is an important um, mission of the foundation And I am very happy that I can try and help
0: which a lot of people are going to be encouraged by your Technological optimism your belief that technology can help bring the the reality the, the, the astonishingly dark reality of Auschwitz Birkenau to many people around the world who can't get to Poland, particularly people in Latin America and Asia. Uh, What's your opinion, though, of the way in which the Internet and social media seems to be in some ways challenging the historical truth of Auschwitz-Birkenau and the Holocaust? How are you countering the lies and propaganda that seem to increasingly define social media in the Internet age?
1: Uh, it's a very, that's a very good question and a very challenging question actually. Um, I think, I actually believe that the role of memorials including Auschwitz-Birkenau is to serve in telling the truth and uh, telling about the facts, what had happened, how many victims um, uh, how many people were killed at those places, what were the circumstances about their exist- existence, the reasons why they were brought to these camps um, and teach um, us next generations um, about uh, where hatred leads to so they have to be there and to tell the story and that's why um, new technology social media is so important because they allow to reach out to um, to new audiences uh, when we take the example of the Auschwitz Memorial they have uh, more than 2 million followers on uh, Twitter on Facebook and they tell the story of individual if it's possible to tell the story of individual victims And with this they are trying to make a difference, to build communities and to explain to people how important it is that we follow their their path and that that we remember. Not only to remember, which is of course one of the most important um, jobs we have at Auschwitz, but also to be there as a a warning cry against hatred, racism, anti-Semitism and so on. So I think that of course there is lots of risks involved with social media, but at the same time they can serve a very good purpose and needs to to be used in a way which allows us to um, spread the word around authenticity, around evidence, and hopefully convince more people that this is uh, the better way to move ahead than than to rely on on on, um, on lies and and propaganda.
0: Deborah Barabisha is an authority on quantum computing and many other areas of sophisticated technology. Uh, Deborah, Happy New Year. Nice to see you at DLD.
2: Happy New Year to you and to your audience. It's so great to be here.
0: Deborah, I hope it's a good one. What should we expect for quantum in 2023? A lot of people describe quantum as the next big bust, uh, another frothy mess like crypto. Uh, Is it for real and can it be for real in 2023?
2: Well, uh, as you probably know, there's a lot of hype about quantum computing. If we can get to quantum advantage, which means that a quantum computer would be able to solve a particular problem better than any uh, super classical computer, then you know that it would. Hopefully, solve incredible complex problems in healthcare, in energy, in designing new materials, in cybersecurity. However, I'm one of the more, I, a, a, I'm not hopeful that we'll see quantum advantage in the next three to five years. I still think that we are working with an engineering issue that is really hard. We have to transition the science to making qubits that are uh, that work well, that have high fidelity, and that can actually calculate things better than a classical computer. So all I wanna see for 2023 is one company solving a small chemical problem, for example, or an optimization problem better with a quantum computer than with a classical one.
0: Deborah, for our non-technical audience, quantum computing might appear mysterious, magical, or fraudulent. In very simple terms, explain what it is and why it's such a profoundly, potentially profoundly revolutionary development in the history of computing.
2: Absolutely. So Andrew, the way we have been doing computing for the last 50 years or more is that we take electricity, a current, and we have little electrons flowing in a current and we have a circuit design which forms a chip inside your computer. And basically, uh, we have ones and zeros that determine that are determined by current passing in the in, in the wire or current not passing, and that's that's it. So, because we have ones and zeros, the probabilities uh, uh, or the way we calculate things is they can either have a value of one or zero. All the pixels that we see in a picture, uh, all the pixels or, or the, the the points calculating an equation or whatnot have to do with that. However, quantum computing is revolutionary in in the sense that instead of using currents and electrons, now it's able to trap a single particle, like an electron or a photon, or a superconducting circuit trapping a state of matter that is in a quantum state. And the reason why this is amazing is because the rules of quantum mechanics of really small particles are very strange and one of the rules is that they can have the probability of taking many many more values than just one or zero because of that it's like a coin if you spin a coin instead of just having heads or tails when the coin is spinning you can have a multiple combination of states like 20 percent head and 80 percent tail etc and that opens the number of possible calculations to exponential speed and that's why calculations that were never possible before can be done with quantum computing.
0: Deborah there are going to be some people chilled by this they're fearful of the power the destructive power of traditional computing so when it comes to quantum they might imagine that damage that destructive nature to be magnified should we be concerned with the darker consequences potentially of quantum if it ever becomes for real.
2: I think we should absolutely be concerned, but my point of view is that we shouldn't be more concerned about that particular technology than about AI, for example, because I think every piece of innovative and complex technology can be used for good or for bad depends on, you know, the the in in whose hands it ends up in. So Quantum computing uh, can decrypt. It's a threat for a regular um, a, a cybersecurity, and, and it can decrypt a bunch of passwords and codes of government, and it can be a threat. It's also like really useful in many positive ways, like creating new medications and so on. So I think there should be committees formed about the ethics of quantum computing, just like we have a bunch of people working and doing amazing work about the ethics of AI or the ethics of IVF and fertility and so on.
0: I'm back at DLD in Munich, 2023, learning about all the most radical revolutionary um, and exciting technologies that are going to change the world. and. I don't think I've come across anything quite as outrageously disruptive, terrifying and exciting as the product from a company called Cortical Labs. Uh, I had dinner last night with a man called Andy Kitchen who was involved with Cortical Labs. Uh, Andy, is Cortical Labs rebuilding the human brain and allowing it to essentially exist on its own without human beings themselves?
3: That's such a huge and explosive question. I would say not quite yet. We grow our little fragments of brains inside a petri dish in contact with thousands of electrodes and we uh, interface with them. We teach them to do things. Uh, what, we, what we're calling it is synthetic biological intelligence. So that's um, living cells integrated into a computer chip uh, and the, the thing that we really do is teach them to do things. They live in a matrix world, and we uh, create a specific stimulus which allows them to learn to play the video game Pong, and we're, we're also working on many things into the future.
0: So what you're saying is that you have created artificial brains that play Pong on their own.
3: They certainly uh, exist in the environment of Pong. They would be more like brain fragments, neural cell cultures. Um, they're two dimensional. Uh, one of the things that uh, we do have on a horizon is creating proper three dimensional cell cultures, but these are monolayers, they're quite flat. Uh, But yes, they are uh, extremely brain-like, they are living tissue, they grow interconnections autonomously, the stimulus that they're exposed to causes them to learn in a way very similar to the way they would learn in an organism.
0: And is this the death knell for you and I as human beings? Is it the end of the species? Is cortical labs, a message to us humans that we're finished, that we are at best now footnotes to the the rest of the history of time?
3: It certainly isn't and I think what it does do is bring something that is often a philosophical thought experiment, the brain and the vat, into life and into the world and it's something that I think is interesting of course as piece of engineering but is also interesting as a, as a piece of philosophy and i think that the reason why people are sort of attracted and fascinated and sometimes uh, you know uh, astounded by the idea is that uh, it does it does really push the boundaries of life because the system that we have built has many similar qualities to a living organism but yet it is not quite a living organism so this thing we've engineered is, is, is category-defining. It's on the frontier of what is possible.
0: Pushing the boundaries might be seen as a euphemism. You seem a very nice fellow to me, Andy. We had dinner last night. You're a, an Australian now living in Berlin. I would probably trust you maybe to pay for my dinner, but I'm not sure I'd trust you with the future of the species. Why should we trust guys like you?
3: Thank you, that's very kind of you to say. Um, Look, I think the only way to approach things like this are with something that sometimes lacks in the technical world, which is humility and collaboration. Um, One of my good friends and colleagues has now um, co-authored a purely ethics-based paper with an ethicist. We don't have all the answers. We follow to us what are the highest ethical standards, and we're always, always open to communicating, to collaborating, and so I think that is my answer. The reason why you hopefully will trust not people like me, but me personally, is because we will approach it as explorers only can, with grace, humility, and collaboration.
0: What about the role of regulation, Andy? Um, Some people regret the fact that governments didn't regulate big tech companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon. As technology begins to radically disrupt every aspect of life, including life itself and even the future of the species, what should the role of government and regulation be in areas like yours, in synthetic biology, in the reinvention of life?
3: You know, that is such a huge question, and to come back to the humility topic, I can only say what I personally believe, and and that is we face challenges. We must make sure we tackle these biggest questions, these future of humanity questions, together. And uh, sometimes governments do an excellent job of representing the interests of people. Sometimes they do not. And to the extent they do represent the interests of people, they should be uh, creating what regulation is necessary, specifically to us, what Ethics guidelines should apply to organoids to synthetic biology is a frontier and we want to participate in we want to participate in that in the development of I, I think those guidelines and protocols because it is something that is, is deeply important to us. Amy
0: Wilkinson,
3: professor at Stanford Business School,
0: the author of The Creator's Code, a hot hit book. Uh, from recent past. Uh, Amy, you are reasonably, cautiously optimistic about AI in 2023. Tell us why. Why you are more optimistic and less fearful of the AI revolution.
4: I'm optimistic because I think the AI will actually amplify uh, business and different leaders. I think you will have an AI as your personal assistant and uh, it will make People more productive. So instead of replacing jobs, I think it will uh, simply help you replace menial work and be able to do higher quality work.
0: Amy, there are some people who believe that um, AI will put us all out of work, that uh, smart machines will replace human beings. Are you in any way fearful of that?
4: Uh, no, I actually think that AI is going to create some kind of uh, you know, shift in the type of the work we're doing. But I think that uh, AI may do average, mediocre jobs at writing, chat, GPT, etc. And then editors and writers are going to take that as a first draft and up level and be even stronger at it. So I, I think that we'll see shifts in work, but I'm not thinking that people are going to be replaced by AI.
0: Uh, Amy you and I did a a panel on AI at DLD this year uh, and we talked about making entrepreneurs a little bit more morally responsible for the technologies that they create and profit from is that something we need to focus on with AI you teach at Stanford University which has produced some of the world's most brilliant but also sometimes controversial entrepreneurs do we need to focus on the moral as well as the technological yes. potential of this technology?
4: Yes, 100% we do. And I think that we need to be, you know, having coalitions of people in the, the process of building. So Stanford has the human-centered AI initiative. We've got all kinds of people uh, from industry, from government, from academia that are coming together to try to have oversight over what this is. So yes, we need to have transparency on where information is coming from. We need to try to have lack of biases in AI engines. So there's a lot that we need to do. But again, I'm on the optimistic side that this will happen.
0: Amy, one of the, the big tech companies that gets reasonable press when it comes to moral responsibility is Microsoft. They've been around the block a few times, they've been once vilified, now perhaps more like than Facebook or Amazon or Google. Microsoft's very much involved with OpenAI. They've made a significant investment in it and in their chat GPT platform and technology. You work a lot with large corporations like Microsoft. Is that where moral leadership in America is increasingly coming from? From its corporate leaders? It's certainly not coming from Washington, D.C
4: yes i think that we're seeing business leaders step up and have a lot more of a societal role than we have in the past so 100 percent i have great admiration for top leadership at microsoft i think that you know having them involved is positive um but i also think there are great leaders you know who are startup founders who are investors you know it again is going to take coalitions of people so Microsoft with uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT, you know, that's they're looking at a future of having that kind of technology in the office suite. So that will be interesting, right? If PowerPoint, we already see that to some degree. PowerPoint's got design functionality that says, "Would you prefer to have a different design?" We'll just see more of that, or in Word or in Excel. So um, I think it's good to have Microsoft involved, but I also think it takes again coalitions of people.
0: Amy, you're a successful writer. Some people are fearful that AI is gonna put writers out of business. There's already a lot of concern about the impact of chat GPT on college papers. You're on the front lines there as well. What do you expect these new AI technologies, what kind of impact are they gonna have on the written word, on writers, and indeed on teachers like yourself at at colleges?
4: So, so I think, GPT is going to do a lot for marketing materials for example so maybe uh, posting things on social media that's going to be something that chat GPT does i you know maybe it's a first draft of articles but writers are going to have to take it up a level humans are going to have to take that as a first draft and make it better and so i think if you are a professional writer if you're an editor that this will be an assistant again you know it's going to how are you to do faster writing? I don't think it's going to replace writing.
0: So It's nice to catch up with old friends from the Keen On Show, which has been going a while now. Back in 2014, one of my guests was Eric Bryn Johnson, who was then a professor at MIT, and the author of a hit new book, The Second Machine Age. Uh, eight years, maybe nine years later, the book has become a classic in its field, describing the future of technology. Eric remains Eric, but he's gone from MIT to Stanford. Um, and I caught up with him at DLD this year. Eric, have we finally reached the second machine age? <laughs> is, is 2023 gonna be the
5: first year of our second machine age? It's, uh, parts of it are happening faster than I expected. Parts of it are a little bit slower. The part that's happening faster is what's happening with uh, you know, generative AI, large language models. I've been blown away. It's been fun being out of Stanford where I'm close to a lot of people who are inventing that technology. I've been surprised how powerful it is. Parts of it are happening a little slower. Uh, self-driving cars aren't quite where I thought they would be by now. Um, certainly our, our political and business institutions aren't keeping up. So it's been an uneven and rocky ride. You might just remind everybody, uh, Eric, what the second machine age is, or what you meant by it. Well, we call it the second machine age because the first industrial revolution really was all about using machines to take over some of our muscle, our physical uh, tasks, and uh, that has had a good run for a few hundred years and created 50 times more wealth than we had back then. Uh, But now we've begun having machines that can do cognitive tasks, and augment our brains, not just our muscles. And the second machine age is about technologies that do that. When you've been on the show
0: in the past, Eric, we've talked about the impact on human labor of the second machine age. Yes. Of machines making humans unemployed, taking away jobs. You've always been cautiously optimistic on that front.
5: Um, do you remain optimistic as AI becomes increasingly real? Well. Yeah, I'd call it even mindful optimism, which is that I don't think that good outcomes are inevitable, Uh, I don't think bad outcomes are inevitable. I think we have some choices. The tools we have right now are much more powerful than any tools we've had before, and almost by definition, that means we have more ability to control our future, to change the environment, and our values therefore become more important. If we use these tools to create widely shared prosperity, the next decade could be the best decade ever. But it's also possible that we'll use the tools as we have to a large extent in the past 10 years to increase the concentration of wealth and power, and that would leave a lot of people worse off. So I'm only optimistic to the extent that we could have a better outcome if we choose to use the tools in the right way.
0: Lots of talk, Eric, in 2023 about new AI companies like OpenAI. Um, have we seen the first real companies of the second machine age yet? Would you include the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons, or are we gonna see newer companies, maybe like OpenAI, that reflect the profound
5: uh, change of a second machine age? There's wave after wave of new companies, and and what OpenAI is doing, I I personally think it's incredibly exciting. I thought what Amazon did, changing retailing, was exciting, and I've no doubt that there are other ones that I don't know the names of yet that are uh, being incubated right now. I think the next few years will be quite disruptive because these large language models, these generative models are so powerful they're going to create new industries and whole new ways of doing business. So the pace of change is likely to accelerate as we have more companies that have these kinds of uh, capabilities. Eric, you're the author of a number of best-selling
0: books. Um, The chat GPT has worried some writers and people in the, intellectual business of one kind or another. Are you concerned about the impact of this on
5: writers and teachers and indeed students? Uh, I'm concerned that a lot of people are really misunderstanding what the technology can do. I think we should be embracing this technology and we could have a decade of some of the best writing ever, some of the best poetry, some of the best songs, some of the best fiction, some of the best nonfiction and essays. The answer is not to try to stop the technology or detect it or prevent people from using it. There's an AI conference that recently banned people from using it to help for their papers. A lot of uh, high school teachers and college teachers are trying to keep their students from using it. That's the wrong mindset. These tools should allow us to write better than we did before. I've been already begun using it. I was using it to help with some comments I wrote for the National Bureau of Economic Research. First in my own voice, and then for fun I had it it right in the style of Taylor Swift. And I think the audience loved it. It was poetic. There were metaphors I never would have thought of, but it usually requires having a human in the loop and having a human and a machine working together, having GPT-3 and GPT-4 working with the person to point it in the right direction, I think it's going to create more and better writing than we've ever had before.
0: Eric, uh, at DLD 2023, you're talking with uh, Andrew McAfee, your co-author of The Second Machine Age and the Uh, with the editor of The Economist uh, about the growing gulf between European and American tech. Is this a chasm that's going to grow
5: even deeper in 2023? I think it may, actually. Um, We're seeing power laws become more and more important. Winner-take-all economics become more and more important. That's the nature of the economics of digital goods. That's the nature of networks. And even within the United States, we're seeing some uh, cities and coasts pull away from others and we're having more unevenness in different companies pulling away from others and the same thing's happening at the nation state level. So I would not be surprised if we saw an even bigger gap uh, going forward than we've had in the past. Eric, you're a smart guy, taught at MIT,
0: now at Stanford. Uh, So you can see the future about as well as anyone, of course, no one could ever really see the future. Any hunches about what we're gonna be surprised with in 2023 on the tech front? New technologies that we weren't expecting?
5: Is technology gonna be what? Uh,
0: what are we gonna be looking for
5: in 2023? What are we going to be surprised? I think there's still a lot of run for these large language models. And when GPT-4 comes out, I think people will be surprised at how much more powerful it is even than GPT-3. Uh, big companies like Google may be disrupted and industries like the legal profession, medicine, uh, screenwriting in Hollywood will all be affected quite dramatically as well. So we're gonna bring forward some of the predictions of when artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence is going to be pervasive and widespread as we see these tools rolled out.